0: invite you to come with me to Romans chapter 15 and verse 13. But as we sing that song, it ties into our theme as well of living the life of faith. Because Peter told us that we are kept by the power of God. He'll hold us fast. But he says we're kept by the power of God through faith. For the salvation that is ready to be revealed. Last Sunday was Reformation Sunday and so we think about the great themes of justification being declared right with God by grace alone through faith alone. And we're accustomed to thinking more in terms of we're saved by faith. The just shall live by faith, the Bible says, at key times in the Old Testament and the New Testament, including in chapter 10 of the book of Hebrews. But in Hebrews, the righteous living by faith isn't about one's eternal destiny, but about living today. I've talked a little bit about this before. I think in sermons, certainly in New Horizons teaching times, where it's sort of striking to be able to say, are you a believer? Do you trust in the Lord? And what we mean is, do you trust in the Lord to save you so that you go to heaven and not to hell? And we say, yes, I'm a believer. I trust the Lord. But if you're anything like me, well, you trust Him for eternity. That's wonderful. Do you trust Him for Tuesday? But whatever you're really going through right now it's the same person and if he can accomplish everlasting salvation and rescue from hell so you go to heaven instead but for me the challenge is trusting God really and truly and transformingly in the present Romans 15 13 is a prayer wish from the Apostle Paul that gives us a glimpse of what that looks like. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. And then that crucial phrase, as you trust in him. So that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, if someone described you and would they say i tell you what she is filled with joy and peace and just overflows with hope well don't feel at all bad if you're like i'm not sure because believe me i'm self-aware enough to know that's not how people think of me and it's convicting the kind of analytical mind the kind of phlegmatic temperament that can look at any circumstance or situation and kind of see oh there's problems with that or there's that's not quite right and that that and after a while that just sucks the joy right out of you now the bible is realistic when it talks about joy and peace paul who wrote rejoice always is sometimes so downcast that he despairs even of life. And so the Bible's realistic, but still it calls us to this kind of joy and it promises us that there's a way to get there, even if it is the nuanced 2 Corinthians 6 kind of sorrowing yet always rejoicing. Simple-minded Christianity can't put those two things together. And so there's the temptation of the health and wealth heretics that it's all joy all the time. But the Bible knows better. But still, fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him and so this morning I want us to talk about faith what it means to trust in him in our present life and circumstances and I want to give a description and a definition of this kind of faith and I'm not going to show all the uh, Bible interpreting work that built the pieces of this definition together this time just trust me I did the homework I hope because I want to get to the definition itself and how it actually is to work and can work And frankly, some of you out there, I know that it does work because I watch your lives. What is faith? This kind of faith. Faith is confidence in God and His promise to bless. Faith is confidence in God, His character, and in His promise to bless, to do good, to save to happify Jonathan Edwards kind of invented word, but it's a good one, because we long for happiness. We're wired for it. We were created that way. And we're always casting about where can real and lasting happiness be found. Faith knows where it can be found. And it trusts, and it keeps trusting, and it doesn't go looking in other places. Faith is a confidence in God and his word that is his promise to bless, to save, to hapify, that generates. James says, look, if you've got a faith that doesn't produce anything, you don't really have faith. Real faith is fruitful and productive and generates things. It generates loyalty and allegiance to God, to his cause and to his commands. Faith works. The obedience, Paul says, of faith is what he's aiming for in his converts. It shows also in this attitude described in Romans 15, 13, an attitude and an outlook of hope and joy and peace and purpose. Those things are really, really what you're like as you trust in him. Faith begins, of course, one step back with believing that God even exists, Romans eleven six says. Anyone who comes to God must believe that he's there, that he exists. But the writer to Hebrews doesn't mean just any God that you make up. He means the God that he's been describing in the book of Hebrews. Anyone who really comes to God must believe that God is the way he's revealed himself to be in his Word. That's the first part. Remember that the demons believe that God exists, though, and even have this sense to tremble in light of the belief. So we've got to go further than we've gone so far. And Hebrews 11 says that also for sure. True and saving faith moves beyond believing about God to believing in him. And this is the sense of trust and confidence in him and his word and in his promise. This is the crucial step. One shortcut way of saying this is that true and saving faith is confident that promises like Romans 8.28 really are true. Not said simplistically or superficially but in a way that recognizes the complexity and mystery of divine providence, still, faith ultimately believes that Romans 8, 28, God causes all things to work together for the good, the true good, the enduring good, the saving good, of those who have been called, who love God and are called according to his purpose. Real faith believes that Psalm 23 is how life actually works and how God actually is. John Calvin explained it this way. In one word, he only is a true believer who firmly persuaded that God is reconciled and is a kind father to him hopes everything from his kindness. Are you firmly persuaded that you and God are reconciled? Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off thy guilty fears. Do you walk around with a sense of, by now, he's got to be frustrated. We don't quite put it that way. It just is how it feels. I mean, I could see the initial forgiveness, but by now, after all this time, still the same besetting sin, still the same besetting anxiety and agitation, still the same besetting self-centeredness, if he has any sense whatsoever. He's kind of gotten tired of it all. Faith doesn't think that way. Convinced that because of the cross, we're reconciled. And now there is only always fatherly kindness. It may sometimes discipline, but it's never punishment of wrath. It's always still fatherly kindness. And that's how faith is uh, is committed to interpreting even the difficult circumstances. That's what a true believer thinks Calvin is saying. By now you've probably heard of the book Gentle and Lowly written by Dane Ortland. That's a great little book to read to keep convincing you that your Savior always loves you and is always gentle and lowly of heart toward you. If you've really repented and turned in trust to him and that means too that your father you're reconciled and it's only kindness that's always at work ultimately in his dealings with you trusting to the promise of the divine favor Calvin says with undoubting confidence anticipate salvation As the apostle shows in these words in Hebrews, we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence, the confidence that we had, the hour we first believed. Boy, did it seem real and powerful then. Boy, was it joy-producing then. That confidence you had at the beginning, hold on to it till the end. Calvin goes on to say, it will not be enough simply to hold that there is one whom all ought to honor and adore. He said, it's just not going to work. If only in theory you think there's a supreme being I ought to honor and adore, and that's the whole story. Unless we are also persuaded, confident, that he is the fountain of every good, and that we must seek nothing good elsewhere than in him. Faith stops looking elsewhere. For until men recognize that they owe everything to God, that they're nourished by his fatherly care, that he's the author, the source of their every good, and they should seek nothing beyond him, until that's really true of us, he says, they will never yield him willing service. We might keep cranking out the religious activity and going through the motions, but our hearts won't be in it anymore. We may keep honoring him with our lips, spoken, sung, but our hearts far from him. Nay, unless they establish that their complete happiness comes from him, they will never give themselves truly and sincerely to him. One more Puritan. John Owen wrote in a similar way, so much as we see of the love of God toward us, so much shall we delight in him and no more. Every other discovery about God without this will make the soul flee from him. If all you know is he's holy and he's righteous, then whether you, you'll just distance. You've got to believe that he's holy and righteous and kind and pardoning and good. But if the heart be once much taken up with this, the eminency of the Father's love, it cannot help but be overpowered, conquered, and endeared unto him. This, if anything, will work upon us to make our abode daily with him. And then he says, If the love of a father will not make a child delight in him, then what will? Do you, because the word of God says so, believe in God's love for you? Faith is confident in that, and that's what generates the loyalty and the allegiance Let me just say, there's no point in pretending in these things, even out of polite religiousness, to pretend that you believe that God loves you in these ways. You've got to actually get there, or it will never really generate all these blessings that we're talking about this morning. So at this point, I'm reminded of the deep insight of Dallas Willard when he observed, we don't believe something by merely saying we believe it. And that's, I think we can get, yeah, I could see where that would be true. Or even when we believe that we believe it. That may be, wait a minute, that could be true too. I could believe I believe something and still not yet really believe it. Well, what's the reliable indicator then? Willard says, we believe something when we act as if it were true. Now, you could come up with all kinds of analogies of when that's the case, but that is the case. That's when you know you really believe something, when you act as if it were true. Same thing with all of this. I'll know when I've come to really believe that God is only and always a good and kind father to me because of his grace when I act as if it were true and our actions includes our emotions if I live in agitation if I live in weak vulnerability to temptation if I live in worldly preoccupation then whatever I say I can't really believe that things are the way the Bible says that they are in terms of my relationship to God And so the second half of Hebrews 11, 6, anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. It is rewarding. It'll be worth it. It'll be crazy worth it to earnestly seek him and find him and engage with him. 1 Corinthians 15 says, give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know, faith knows, that in the Lord your labor never in vain. Always somehow God works through it. It doesn't look like it, I know. Remember, we're, we're not supposed to be walking by sight. We will get tripped up every time if we mainly interpret circumstances by our see and our interpreting them. We're going to have to walk by trust. And 1 Corinthians 15 says, Every act of service, every act of sacrifice, it's never in vain. It will be rewarding. In fact, Genesis 51 says, I'm your exceeding great reward. If all this is true, then it fits with what the great other reformer, Martin Luther, said. The sin underneath all our sins is that we cannot trust the love and grace of Christ and so we must we feel we must take matters into our own hands. I can't trust in the love and grace. I'm not I'm not I know I ought to be, but I'm not there. I don't really believe that sticking with obedience and the plan and providence and purpose of God and the path of God for my life is really going to bring me to the happiness that I'm wired to long for. So I'm going to look elsewhere. And we've been falling for that one ever since the garden. Honestly, we're wired for happiness. God places us in a place of perfect happiness. And if we had just trusted him, in his word of promise, we would have stayed loyal. We would have said no to the tree. But what happened? What always happens? Satan slithers in with his, Yea, hath God said, thou shalt not. In other words, he attacks our confidence in the truthfulness of the word of God and the promise of God. That's how he always works. And we fall for it and it always ends up terribly. It did, and then, and then Israel. God's going to start over with the people, and they need to trust and obey him. And he shows himself as a great and powerful redeemer by blood and by power. He brings them out from the bondage of Pharaoh in Egypt. I mean, it's extraordinary, the miracles he enacts in order to make that happen, to bring them, and he's leading them I want to take you to a land of milk and honey. There's more happiness ahead if you'll just trust and obey. But boy, oh boy. The first trial and hardship that comes, thirsty, oh, I wish we were back in Egypt. Sure was great back in Egypt. That's how stupid sin makes us and temptation makes us. So then God brings water out of a rock. And like, you would think with all the plagues, and by the way, you just went between walls of water in the Red Sea, and you just saw your worst enemies drown to death, but then we're hungry, we don't have food. Sin and disobedience again. And I would read the Old Testament passage. I'm like, what is the problem with those Israelites? And then, of course, it doesn't take very long for it to dawn on you. That's exactly the way you are, Doug. That same moral shortcut you're willing to take, that same despondency you're willing to lapse back into, trust trust in God freezes from all that if Augustine was right that our hearts are restless until they find rest in God then it seems to me like a restless heart is a sign that a person hasn't gotten there where they really do rest in God and trust in his goodness which is to say they really haven't come to the place where they truly trust him to do them good our sins, are symptoms. By the way, the righteous were always to have lived by a faith that produces faithfulness. The just shall live by faith was always the story. Adam and Eve would have remained righteous had they lived by faith that generated obedience. True of the Israelites, they failed. Jesus, the perfect Israelite though, he trusted and obeyed. And boy, it took him all the way to deep, deep, deep trouble, the death of a cross. But, therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that's above every name. That at the, one, the name, the one given to Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess and mean it, Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the trajectory of trusting in the truthfulness of the promises of God to save you to bless you to happify you and to do you good let me apply it then and say it just another way faith is repentance repentance means to profoundly change your mind and perspective in a way that changes your direction well that's what coming to faith naturally necessarily is salvation comes into a life when the rebellion that was rooted in unbelief and distrust towards God, that started with Eve and Adam, but now the gospel, the good news, the news about Christ, the good news about God, he offers a pardon and he offers, you know, you can have this free forgiveness and then I'll make you my child and then I'll take you eventually to my heavenly home and you'll live in a new heaven and a new earth where only righteousness is at home That news changes the mind. And the person who used to rebel out of distrust towards God starts to submit, to trust, and to follow because now they trust God again. And that leads us to the crucial question, I guess. This faith, when I read it, when I study it, when I see it in the lives of others, when I see it in the lives of people in Scripture, when I do my own exegesis and interpretation and see what it produces, then the question, I I want that. How do I get there? How do I get this kind of faith? And then we're reminded of the basic biblical principle that Paul articulated. Faith, I'll tell you where it comes from. It comes from hearing. Hearing. The message of Christ. Now how does that work? Paul is talking about the message from Christ and about him. He's talking about the good news that persuades us to trust God again. The good news that centers in the saving death, the victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ and that centers in the good news of the kingdom the return of the reign of God. It is striking and important to remember that we are given the Lord's Supper to remind us of the crucial realities of the work of God so that we can be nourished and strengthened in faith. At the Lord's table, through the words of institution that Jesus himself gave us, we are reminded to focus on two faith-building realities. First, God's love. God's undeserved but lavish love for us in giving his Son to be our Savior. Because every time we eat the bread and every time we drink from the cup we proclaim the Lord's death the son of God loved me and gave himself for me Galatians 2 every time we come to the table we're reminded of that reality we're reminded of that message boy let me say it again don't look to circumstances this is a fallen broken down twisted world And there is injustice and there is cruelty and there is hate and folly everywhere. And if you look around the circumstances to try to trace whether God is good and loving, you're bound to miss it. In the mystery of providence, he's allowed this rebellion to play out the way that it is. So he gave us something to keep reminding us. I love the simplicity of the communion service every time, proclaim the Lord's death, God so loved us, he gave his only son to save us. If you want to be convinced about how loving and good and gracious and merciful and forgiving God is, look to the cross. But second, we're also reminded to look forward when we come to the Lord's table. For it says... We proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. An old gospel song that talks about him showing up to split the eastern sky. You know, one day that's really actually going to happen. He's really coming back. And when he comes, finally, he's going to bring the kingdom with him. And the kingdom of this world is going to become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign in forever and ever. And I want to tell you, he's going to put everything back to the way it's supposed to be and even better. And I want to tell you too, amen, (laughs) I was just about to say, because I confessed before about how kind of naturally uh, I can be. But even I can be encouraged by this. Even I can study and think about this and think, this is going to be great. This is going to be wonderful. This can give me joy. This can give me this, when peace like a river, it is well with my soul kind of peace and contentment. The cross and the second coming and the return of the reign of God they build faith back into someone. A transforming trust comes back from the message of God, the message of Christ. Go with me to just something that struck me, Luke chapter 23, a little incident about Joseph of Arimathea. And there's a particular phrase in it that especially hit me. Luke 23, verse 50. Now there was a man named Joseph, a man of the council, the Sanhedrin, a good and upright man who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he himself was waiting expectantly for the kingdom of God. What makes religious respectable? political and religious leader Joseph of Arimathea decide I'm going to side with the shamefully crucified Messiah Jesus and I'm going to buck what all the rest of the council did it's because he's been waiting for the return of the reign of God everything upside down You believe that deeply and strongly enough? Guess what? Things get turned right side up in your own way of looking at things too. In your own way of walking and living. In all of these ways, the word of Christ, the message about Christ is to enrichly inhabit our lives. That means the word about Christ is to dominatingly inhabit our worship services. Every song Every sermon, everything that's spoken or sung should be one way or another, this message, because the thing we need more than anything else is faith, trust in God. So are you a believer? Yes. Do you trust in God for my eternity? Absolutely. You trust in God for today for tomorrow, this week. Remember Paul's key phrase again, the obedience from faith. Does your faith in God, your trust in his goodness to you and his promise that he's going to truly save and bless and happify if you'll just stay with? He'll hold you fast, but he holds you fast through faith. A faith that generates obedience to his commands, commitment to his cause, and contentment in his providence. The end of Hebrews 10 says, So do not throw away your confidence. It will be, I promise you, it will be richly rewarded. It would be a terrible mistake to give it up. You need to persevere so that when you've done the will of God, you'll receive what he has promised for in just a little while. He who is coming will come, and he'll not delay. And in the meantime, my righteous one will live by faith. We don't belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith, who keep trusting, who keep believing... And are saved. And so Paul's prayer wish for the Christians at Rome is what we should sincerely pray for and aim for and encourage in one another. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And if you're anything like me, maybe you're thinking something like, Lord, I believe. I do have faith. But help my non-belief. Help my faith to grow stronger, fresher again. Deeper. And more transforming. Transforming. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your words that first present the picture of what can be sinners saved by grace who've come to really trust in you again and therefore are following you gladly and purposefully, hopefully, and then tells us the simplicity of how we get there. I'm thankful That our Christian religion works because of your grace and the power of the Spirit by rightly responding to your written down words. And so, Lord, I pray for myself. I pray for every believer here that our faith can get stronger and wiser and truer. And Lord, I pray for those who are still here outside of Christ. Maybe they have a God of their own making, but they need to be the, come to the God who actually exists and put their trust in him in a way that transforms everything about them. Work by your spirit through your word to bring about these glorious results. We pray in Christ's name. Christ, the one who's the author and the perfecter of what it means to live by faith, amen.